Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The attitudes expressed are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised, there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. Welcome back. It's recovery, sort of. Jason, the guy just trying to stay clean. Here with Billy, as always. Hi, Billy. Hi. And we got Dr. Rob on today, Dr. Rob Kelly, who has a recovery group and a book and a podcast and some theories about recovery. And, and that's what we want to talk about today a lot. But I think first we, we want to just have you on and welcome you, Dr. Rob. Thanks for coming on today. Awesome. Good to be here, guys. Gonna, looking forward to this. It's going to be awesome. Good to meet you both. Sweet. So, I, I, and I know you've done a, a wealth of things for the recovery community since you got here, but I think Billy and I were both really intrigued at some of your story. I mean, you, you talked about playing guitar in England and being homeless, and, and we were curious, like, how all that looked, and, and were you homeless in England or in America, and what did your, you know, healthcare access look like when you got here? So could you tell us some of that just to start? Yeah, well, my, my, I was I always wanted to be a pro, uh, professional musician, not so much famous, but a professional musician. I'd seen, you know, during the years, I've seen a friend of mine like Noel uh, from Oasis get famous and Elton John, and I don't want that. I want to be able to walk to the store and, and uh, <laughs> be earning a million dollars without anybody knowing. That was the idea. So I started drinking at the age of nine with my uh, musical family on stage, Liverpool's where it was, where the Beatles are from, uh, on a stage playing there. And... Um, yeah, when I look back with my education and my and my, I specialized in probably thirty years on the brain and alcoholism, something nobody specializes in. And the reason why they don't is there's no money in recovery. I don't know whether you you've got that yet, but there isn't. Unless somebody can give you a pill or charge you thirty grand a month, that nobody wants to know. But uh, my some that's when alcoholism started, and I didn't know it. I just know that when I took that drink, my whole life changed and my whole body and feeling changed. Suddenly when I went back on stage for the second half, I was Chuck Berry or something. It was just, you know, everyone's going, wow, this guy's come alive. I was so nervous. So I took it and bang. So I knew I'd found something. So, you know, we, I come from a trailer park, guys. I really do. And uh, I, my parents couldn't afford anything. But this is what I learned later on in life is they couldn't afford 10 cents back in the day, or 10 pence, as we call it, uh, to pay the school for me to go on a camping trip two miles away with, with all the schoolmates, yet they could afford to go, go to the bar every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. And that really hit home when I did my work on myself. Mm. You know, like I used to walk to school with holes in my shoes and have to put cardboard, you know, in the soles so I could walk, especially in the snow, but I also had holes in my socks. One counselor said to me one day, did your mom and dad have holes in their socks? Oh, mm. you know, it was like, oh, my God. So many people, when they look at alcoholism, say, yeah, you drink too much. But no, it's childhood trauma. That was my childhood trauma amongst a billion other stuff. So went through normal school. I was a musician guy in, in all the school, loved playing. And at the age of about 15, maybe 14, I applied to a local recording studio when they used to do the old uh, TV and radio advertisements when they had to play the musical instruments, not touch a screen as they do today. And uh, I got the job because I was very good at playing bass. I can play any instrument. My music room has got like everything in there. So I knew I, I, I was thinking, I go in this studio for like 45 minutes. I play this track. I come out and they give me 50 pounds. That's crazy. <laughs> so I knew there was some money in it and what I could access, but it also kind of masked my alcoholism to a bit even though i was only drinking two or three times a day and then went to college you see i'm an all or nothing guy i'm either all in or i'm all out you know i'm either pregnant or i'm not there's no such thing as half pregnant with me you know so i, I wanted i applied for this i was sat in the story studios reading this uh, music music melody maker i think it was called and there was an advertisement for a bass player abbey road now i'm 16 17 years old when I get there, there's guys there in the 40s and 50s that's been gigging and playing for years. And I'm 17. Anyway, after nine auditions and nine beers outside, but we'll get into that later, I got the audition. 
And what that told me was that every time I drank, great things happen. Mm. So I get to do his sessions with Elton, Bowie, Queen, all them guys. I had many a night up with Freddie into the deep night talking about philosophy and the way of the world and just live this, live this life. I remember one night it was pouring with rain and lightning and thundering, or as we call it, winter in, in uh, England. And we, Elton called it because the generator was kicking in, kept, it was at half a second before it kicked in, and the recordings were useless. So he's sick of going and re-recording. So we all headed back to his hotel, the penthouse suite in the Savoy. Now, at one time in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the Savoy was one of the most exclusive hotels in the world. Real top, uh, top class, five-star plus kind of service. And uh, we're sat in his penthouse. There's me. There's a couple of guitarists. There's like girls. There's him. There's, you know, two of his minders. I can't remember exactly in the room. But I remember sat there, leant back, and I looked around and I saw copious amounts of alcohol with copious amounts of cocaine and anything that you want to do and i thought to myself wow does life get any better than this mm. you know today it has to for me because the madness of that room 30 seconds later i hear elton screaming on the phone in his bedroom what the hell's going on so i went in he's on the phone to the receptionist this is the crazy world i belong to telling the receptionist and the manager that if they didn't stop the rain and the thunder within five minutes, he will never book in that hotel room again. <laughs> and I sat down in the bed. I said, How's ins how is insane is the music world? You know, it just, you know, you've got everything. No wonder I spiraled out of control. So with the money from that, the session music, music I went to college and, Again, I, I became I became the youngest Freemason, I think, in England because this a friend of mine was in the Freemason. He was 19. I was only 17. Got to be 18. But they didn't have an organist. They'd be searching for an organist, especially this lodge, uh, how 50 lodge, but this lodge, they couldn't find an organist for the last 10 years. So they brought me in younger. So I had the Freemason contact. I don't mind saying that today, as long as anyone doesn't kill me. Uh, <laughs> so I, I suddenly, with a smile and a handshake, uh, got into Oxford University. Mm -hmm. So I paid my way through that. Still, now I'm drinking every day. By the way, drinking every day, not a problem. And um, that's kind of where my all-day drinking, you know, started. And I didn't realize it took a long time to realize that I had a problem with alcohol. So, from college, it, that seems a. Uh, I mean, it's an incredible story so far. But just from that college experience and not realizing you had a problem, did it? take the homelessness to see the problem later on or it took that yeah, much huh it did so this is the crazy part let me tell you this is like a really depth in so if you're if you're squeamish step away for a second <laughs> you don't need to hear this because it's horrible and i'm not proud of it but it's part of my story so i came out of college went to be a police force don't know why we had nothing in common with the police my <laughs> freemason friends were all in the police so i'm guaranteed a nice ride so I started there, lasted about nine months. They fired me for being drunk on a job. Really? And then uh, I remember the sergeant or the inspector, when I went in, he took my, he took my badge off me. And uh, he, he, he said, hey, you're a disgrace to the uniform. Why don't you walk home? You're alcoholic. You are. You're alcoholic, Rob. Disgrace. I remember walking home thinking, I can't believe he said I was an alcoholic. Not that I'd lost my job, I was on duty drunk. Or my parents, the shame for my parents, but he just called me an alcoholic. I mean, what? I know what them alcoholics are like. They're them guys around the fire with big, you know, coats on with string around the waist in nighttime singing perfect harmonies to every song. They're the alcoholics that I've seen. There's no way am I an alcoholic, but and then I went back and started a telecom company way before mobile phone came out for the army and navy and, and the uh, air force communications. And sure enough, we were taking probably a million in the first year. So now I got married. And now we have the big house and the Porsche and the Bentley and the Range Rover parked outside. And wow, did we look good. We look really good. So we decided to have our first child. So when we had our first child, I said to my wife, after she's born, I'll never, never drink again. And she said, great. I love that. So I went to the hospital. She was born, her elder in my hand, and I swore to my to my, to my girl, we called her Charlotte, or Charlie for short. I looked her in the eyes, I looked my wife in the eyes, I said, I'm done with alcohol. Now I'm a father. Now it's real stuff, you know? I handed her back, and uh, I stopped drinking. 
It was the worst four hours of my life. <laughs> That's all I lasted. Yeah. I was in the bar drinking to celebrate the birth. And, mm. uh, you know, the chaos in the house was the same. Mm. Now I started to black out. Now I don't remember getting home at nighttime. And don't remember what I said the night before. But, hey, listen, I'm not, I don't got a drink problem. I can control this and stop anytime I want. So then we got pregnant again with my second child. Well, it was on now, guys. That was it for me. Went down to the to the hospital when my second girl was born. I put I got two Bibles. That's how serious we am. I put each hand on a Bible and I swore to God and I swore to my wife and the children that that was it. The worst seven hours of my life. Because after seven hours, I'm drunk again. And this continued and continued and continued. So when the girls were about one and three or two and four, I can never remember through blackouts. Um, I was I got up in the middle of the night. I woke up probably two or three-ish. Everything in my, in my life happens between two and three. And uh, I come down the stairs because I was dying to drink. My head was banging. And I got down to the bottom of the stairs. I went in the kitchen. And I knew I'd, I'd, I'd left half a bottle of vodka somewhere. So I'm searching around. And I opened this cupboard. And oh, there was it, half a bottle. I took it off, and now I'm in a great mood. I put it on the counter, and I turned around for two minutes to grab a crystal glass because, hell, I don't drink out the bar. I'm not an alcoholic. So I got this beautiful crystal glass worth about 50 pounds in my hand, and I turned around to grab the bottle, and my wife had followed me downstairs without me knowing, and she snatched the bottle off the counter. And she said, and I quote, Rob, I think you've had enough. You have a board meeting in four hours. You've got to drive to work in three hours. This is your second bottle within 14 hours. I should have said, thank you, Mrs. Kelly. You make so much sense. Thank you for being my <laughs> wife. Go back upstairs and slept. Unfortunately, what this alcoholic did was <laughs> took a kitchen knife out and stabbed her three times. Mm. And as she hit the floor losing blood, I called uh, 999 in the UK and, and got an ambulance. Uh, and as soon as I heard the siren in the distance, I jumped into a waiting cab and I fled to Spain. Mm. She just about lived. And I, I stayed there for, I don't know how long, a few months. Because I couldn't come back. They would have arrested me for attempted murder. And the only way I got out from that, because the police wasn't there and there wasn't no witnesses, is she uh, did an affidavit with, with her lawyer to say that she's not pressing charges because it's not like that. It, it, America's different to England. Mm. If the person don't want to press charges, it's dropped. Where over here, if they see it, they still run with it. So I came home and when I got home, she uh, she packed all the bags. And uh, she said, I love you till the day I die, but you're not killing the children. And she left. So the part I'm going to say now, I probably tears in my eyes because after 30 odd years, it's still there. So I got my kids back the next day, the next day legally from attorney, got her back, and she, he brought them to the door the next morning, and I brought them in. So happy, guys. I got my kids back. I closed the front door. I, thanked, I think I gave him like a £10,000 check for doing it because uh, he'd been to the courts and everything. I took him into the front room, ages one and three. I sat him down, and I walked to the kitchen, and I remember thinking, wouldn't it be great to have one drink before to celebrate my girls coming home? Just one. No more. Just having one. Three days later, when the police kicked the door down and the children had not been fed or changed diapers for two days and I was unconscious and there was bottles all over the floor, the police officer kicked me and I woke up and he served me with unfit father papers and he grabbed my children and he walked over the threshold and he handed it to my mother-in-law and my wife. The child services were there, the child protection services were there, the police were there, all stood in the driveway. And my girl, who was three, walking with a mommy, you know, hand up here with mommy's hand and turned around and said, Daddy, Daddy, please don't go. I was crying. They were crying. The police were crying. This policewoman was in tears. And then she got halfway and she turned around one more time. And just the, the way she turned, he said, Daddy, Daddy, please get better. And as they got to the gate, uh, they opened the gate. And my daughter said, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. And I couldn't do it. Hmm. I went back into the kitchen. I had one more drink. Within six months, the car had gone. The cars, the holiday homes, the house, the children, the wife, the bank account, the foreclosures. And then I end up on the streets with nobody wants to see me or know me. Literally sat on the streets on the first night going, where the hell did that just go wrong? Hmm. Wow. 
that's uh yeah. that's an intense story yeah i i really i, I have to say i appreciate you sharing that yeah, with us you. i mean i think that's part um in doing a little bit of the research of having you on i, I didn't come across that part of it and, and i really think like that's that's the deeply meaningful stuff that that we do when we're using right the ways we hurt our loved ones and we hurt ourselves through hurting our loved ones and it's incredibly painful and hard to talk about some of those ways that we uh I, I guess for me, the ways I was just an awful person in, in those yeah. times. Yeah, very selfish. And we're so blind to see. We think that the alcohol or the drugs are fixing or helping in some way. We just mm. miss that connection that, no, this is the cause of all this problem. In the moment, they feel like the answer to all those problems. It helps me not feel like such a terrible person. helps me not have to deal with what I'm doing. And it's just an escape from reality. Yeah, it is. When I when I got on the streets, it was uh, it was brutal where I come from. Yeah, I come from Marseille, Manchester, a bit like Beirut with lights. <laughs> it's really tough over there, you know. And I'm on the streets, and I, I I was a fighter. Where I come from, you have to fight or you get beaten. You know, uh, it, it's the prey or, or or predator or whatever it is. It's like, you know, I learned how to fight early boxing, karate. Then I started bodybuilding, so I'm a huge, two hundred ninety pound steroid alcohol freaked guy you know when all this went wrong so i'm on the streets and i'm surviving really good i'm threatening people i'm hurting people i'm knocking them out and stealing their wallets after a nightclub you know I, I quite liked it on the streets for a bit but i'd wake up one morning you know hung over on the bench i had a special bench in the center of piccadilly that i slept on everyone had their own bench or floor and the guy next to me stabbed to death for his sneakers mm-hmm. and uh I knew every day I had to sleep with my eye open and I fought every day and I bent knuckle fight to earn money and I stole when I didn't have the money and I didn't shower for a year, I didn't bathe, brush my teeth for a year and I just become this guy that nobody recognized, you know? But the thing, when I look back now psychologically, um, that's what was needed then and that guy's still there and it will raise its ugly head if you touch my gut, my dogs or threaten my family that guy comes out and he will always be there. But at that time, you know, that's how I survived. And and I learned a lot of lessons on the street. You know, I often say my homeless days were like a semester at Harvard, hmm. you know, the 14 month, the education I got for what I do today and the research evidence-based research that I've done that's far beyond its time <laughs> that nobody is doing is based on, on some of that and the intense work I've been doing. Cause I was, amused of how somebody like me or anybody in my position or any position can end up homeless so first of all 97 percent of people in piccadilly gardens die hmm. they die on the streets three percent get off hmm. now if you really want to be freaked out i'll tell you i'll go off the streets otherwise we'll go into another question no let's freak us out <laughs> okay so i'm on the streets after 14 months i'm walking down the back end of manchester a road that very rarely gets traveled, Cobble Road. I dropped down to my hands and knees and I started to cry from my belly. Not here, from my belly, the aching cry. And the rain was pounding on my head and it would come around my face, mixing with my tears. And it was hitting this cobblestone that turned like purpley color when it hit. It was a sad, sad, sad state of affairs. But I was done. I tried committing suicide. Didn't work. Slipped my wrist. Didn't work. Every time somebody saved me, I was pissed. Um, so I looked up to the sky and I said these words as a non-believer. I said, if, I don't know why I said it. I said, if there's a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. About 30 seconds later, this guy came around with a small Bible in his hand. He'd missed his last bus home from Bible study. He'd walked at least two hours before he got to me. He said, do you want help? And I said, yeah, I'm dying of alcoholism. And he told me about him being a recovered alcoholic and took me back to his house. And he said, you can stay here for as long as you like. Well, this is what I do for a living. Don't get me wrong. I have a nine to five job, but this is what I do for a living. I remember him saying that. So he let me stay on one condition. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. Nobody picks you up at two o'clock in the morning and don't expect anything. So I'm like, here we go. I said, what is it? And he said, you have to come to AA meetings with me three times a week. Well, that was worse than what I was thinking because I'm like, oh, my God, not them stupid meetings again. Everyone's, you know, bragging how much they drank. But I went. I went because it was a dry bed that night. And sure enough, it started of war story after war story. And about halfway around, a guy called John with white hair and a white beard, very dapper looking guy, but not expensive, just nice shoes on, no cheesecloth shirt. And he said, my name's John and I'm a recovered alcoholic. 
And my ears pricked. I never heard that saying before. My ears pricked up. And then he started quoting shit from the book. And every time I looked at the book, I'm like, oh, my God, that's what it says. Never seen this in the book. Been to hundreds of meetings, <laughs> if not thousands. So after he finished, I thought, there's something about this guy. So I walked over and I said, hey, is it John? He said, yes. I said, will you sponsor me? And he said, no. And just before I could take a breath in and start crying, he said, but I will be your, your spiritual advisor for a period of 12 weeks, which I didn't understand then. He said, here's my address. Come around every Wednesday night. I'm going to teach you about God. I'm going to teach you about the book. And I'm going to teach you about how God has chosen you to carry on this journey. I'm like, yeah, as long as I stop drinking, I'm good, you know. Every Wednesday, we'd go down, we'd do a book study. I'd go home, ring four pages a day. I'd fill different things in that I saw. Went back to his house the next week on a Wednesday. I walked an hour there, an hour in, the, in that apartment with him, and I walked an hour back for 12 weeks, guys. But when I walked out of that man's house on the Sunday, I've been doing the steps overnight because that's what the book tells us to do. Step five, go home. I knew that I was a different man. And he kept saying to me, Rob, things are going to start happening tomorrow. Keep your eyes open. The very next day, I was offered a part-time job because my first thought was, I'm in, I'm in this guy's bedroom. Nobody knows who I am, where I am, or what. I was offered a part-time job, which later turned into a full-time job that week. And I've got this book, and I'm working with people in AA and all that, and I'm working with people. So the full-time, the uh, next week after that, it turned into a full-time job. Somebody gave me a, a, a beaten-up mini car, which got me to work and back. So after about two weeks, I got my first paycheck, which back in then was cash. And I walked to the petrol station, gas station, and I thought, I want to buy him something. So I bought him a little teddy bear. You see, the things he'd shown me and the person I'd become in a little 12 weeks was blowing my mind. I would talk to people at the book and people go, no way is that in the book. No way. I'd say, do you know, it mentions Jesus Christ in the book. Oh, the 10 pounds. Be- I bet it doesn't. I bet it doesn't. Just in case you're wondering, guys, page 11, second word. So oh, I knew I had something special. So I bought this man a little teddy bear this big. That's all it was. All I could afford. And a card. And I wrote on it, thank you, John, for introducing me to God that took the compulsion to drink away. That's all I put on it. Walked back to the man's house. Got to the apartment, banged on the door. Nobody there. I was banging that loud that the right-hand neighbor came out and says, can I help you? Can you tell me where John's moved to? And she went, John? I said, yeah, John. I was only here two weeks ago. There's been no one in that apartment for at least three months that I know of. Mm. You've got the wrong apartment. So I let her close the door, turned the light off, went to the left-hand side, now banging on this guy's door. And he came to the door and I says, can you tell me where John's moved to or relocated to? He said, John. So here we go again. I said, yeah, the guy in that room. And he said, I work for the council, buddy. And I'm telling you now that that apartment's been derelict for 12 months. Mm. Nobody has ever gone in there. So I come around thinking these two are in on a joke. John's made this as a joke. He's, he's funny. So I went back to the AA meeting where I met him. And I said to the, the same guy I was there all them weeks ago. And I said, do you remember that guy, John, I was talking to? And he said, John. I'm like, bloody hell, here we go again. I said, yes, John, that guy there. I was over near the coffee machine talking to myself, and somebody giggled at the back of me. Well, I'm still this fighting guy, so I turn around, and I grab him by the scruff of the neck, and I ram him against the wall. I said, don't you ever laugh at me. And a couple of guys pulled me off, and this is what they said to me, guys. He said, Rob, you don't understand. We're not laughing at you. We just saw you over near the coffee machine talking to yourself. Never found that man. Never. Yet the program, you see, God told me two things. He said, travel around the world for 5,000 miles away from home, check, and guarantee people can recover. Check. And that's what I do. And then when I, that, my life just taken off and taken off and taken off. And so many things have happened. I had cancer. They x-rayed it, went down to operate it, gone. You know, I, I, somebody gave me too much pain meds in the hospital. I was dead for like, 30 seconds before somebody found me. And he just goes on and on and on because I know that the reason I'm here is because he chose me to come here. Hmm. And that might sound a little egoistic, but guys, it's not. It's the truth proven. That based with my, um, obviously, the intense evidence-based research that we do, we can openly brag that we have a 97% success rate in our company. And I'll let you on a little secret. It's actually 100%, but nobody would agree. And it's not 100% with five guys that are doing pretty good. It's 100% with 6,500 people over 30-something years. And that's where I stand before you today. I thank you. Awesome. That's an incredible story. Amazing spiritual awakening, you know. 
little non-traditional, yeah. but it's, you know, it's yeah. amazing the way that higher power works in people's lives. I know. Phenomenal. You shared a story that I had heard you share about when the awakening happened for you, that it was not actually the alcohol uh, that was making oh, yeah. you feel better, right? And so I, I could relate yeah. a lot to that. Uh, I don't know that we need to retell it, but generally as a guy, like uh, I was a heroin guy, right? And all it took was knowing I successfully had purchased it and the ride home was more comfortable internally, right? So I could identify with that idea that like it was the comfort of knowing I had it, I had succeeded in my mission. It, it was more than just like I didn't even physically put it in my body and I already felt better. And so I, I love that idea of like exposing that as it must not be the substance. So if it's not the substance, what is it? Well, it's me. It's you, you know? That was a big aha moment for me where I went back and researched. And further research over the years with volunteers, we find out that with the alcoholic or the drug addict, the, the thought to drink is a snap, and you think, I'm going to drink, I'm going to drive there and get it. You know the liquor store's open. You know the drug dealer's there because he's on the phone waiting for you. I'm right outside now. Come and get it. I'll wait for you. Don't worry. It's all good. You know, I owe you this anyway, so I'll give it to you. The drive to the liquor store or the drug uh, dealer uh, is the most intoxicating part of the journey. Because when we get it after a few seconds, it's oblivion. Right. So it's, it's so. Then I got into into more of the brain. I found out about neural pathways and the the uh, amygdala tied to the hypothalamus, which is my research is evidence based and it's true, but people can't get their head around. And that is now there's two kinds of brain: there's the alcoholic brain and there's, there's uh, the drug addict brain. Everyone thinks they're the same. They're slightly different. You can't drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic. It's impossible. There's a predisposition, hereditary, trace it back in your family. It's there. If it's not there, guys, and everyone's telling the truth, you're not an alcoholic, believe me. You're just a, an abuser of alcohol. So what happens is you can take enough drugs to become drug addicted and addicted to everything else. We all have the, the addictive personality. That's a fact. But you don't wake up as a drug addict. You wake up as an alcoholic from day one. That's the difference. The ethanol and alcohol, I have an allergic reaction in my brain to it and my body and my neural pathways are 90% self-sabotage. That means that anytime I try and build anything up from my family or myself, I will mess it up every single time because I don't think I'm worthy. Things I've realized on my journey is this. And when I realized this many years ago, I came to peace with it. I'm never going to be blonde enough. I'm never going to be tall enough. I'm never going to be thin enough. And I'm never going to be rich enough. As long as I stick to that, I'm going to be good. And stop chasing that thing that I'm never going to have. You see what I'm really chasing? I'm chasing that first drink or drug. And we call it chasing a t-shirt. We had a, a guy here once and his dad was a marathon runner. Tried to make him a marathon runner. There was a, a, a race at school. Three, first three got t-shirts. He come forth, he didn't get one. We found out for the last 25 years he's been chasing that t-shirt. It's a bit like me. You know, I've been chasing something that wasn't there. So then you've got the hypothalamus. It's at the base, to a little bit towards the back. It's a fight or flight, eat or drink kind of uh, part of the brain. Uh, it, it tells us it's our instinct, like dogs chase cats. It's our instinct to eat uh, eat food and drink water. That's why we never have to tell our baby to, to eat because it's already got its fingers down its mouth because it's hungry. It cries because it's hungry. It's, we don't have to teach them nothing. So, so it's telling people to uh, drink water and eat food, to run, freeze, or stay, whatever it may be. Do you know what it tells the alcoholic? It tells them to drink alcohol. And the evidence of that is if you talk to a real chronic alcoholic, they can go days, even weeks, without eating or drinking water. They survive purely on alcohol because that's what the brain's doing. So if the brain is telling me to drink, that's why it becomes a disease. It's a biological chemical that i'm born with that i cannot change so willpower alone isn't getting me sober my kids being taken away isn't going to get me sober the the tons of times i tried to take my life is not going to get me sober 30 days in a treatment center is not going to keep me sober it goes deeper than that i asked smoke alcoholic in 12 steps room so what's an alcoholic pretending i don't know and they go oh it's someone who drinks too much alcohol or can't control it wow how many people have you killed with that line? Because <laughs> that's nothing to do with alcoholism. It's the symptom. They have a brain disease. My brain wants to kill me, hypothalamus, and make it look like an accident. That's the bottom line. And unless I get help, 
and have a spiritual awakening. It's the only thing. And a psychic change, psychic, psychologist, psychiatrist change, a change of mind, we now know to be neural pathways, you are going to die. Period. Oh, but I'm not that bad. You will be. Yeah. You will be that bad and then you'll die. And you'll be you'll be happy to die because your life will be that shit that you don't know where to turn to. You'll be sad. You'll be miserable. You'll be lonely. And you'll just pray for the end. That's alcoholism for you. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah. So how is your rep- recovery program uh, maybe different or or what does it have to offer that traditional like 28-day rehab type programs are missing? So you have to recover in your own environment. Stick your way for 30 days in an isolation. Anybody can keep sober. Anybody can be happy. You're having ice cream every day. You're suddenly taking sauna, getting massages. Everyone's happy. Release them to the normal world again. And it all goes to shit. So it's a bit like this being the house of the alcoholic. The family's sick, by the way, not just him. Let's say they speak German. We take the guy out. We put him into treatment for 30 days. Recovery as its own language. So let's say he's now being taught Japanese. So these speak fluent German. He now knows Japanese. He's going to go back into the house. What's going to happen? He's going to try and force Japanese on them, and they all go with German. We're not going to change. So he goes back to his German. So you have to, in your own environment, day by day. It's one hour a day, so it doesn't bore you. It's telehealth only these days. And we change neural pathways, and we change thought patterns, and we change behavior. You see, when I go to, when I relapse on a Monday, that's not my relapse. My relapse was a week ago when I'm sat in the office looking at Susan over there that still has that stupid pen from Christmas with Father Christmas on it or Santa that she's still using and it's freaking July. Jesus, Susan, that's my relapse. So we teach people how to look for that. My behavior is changing as well. So, and my psychotherapists, they take you two days a week and you will go back and you will clear the trauma up. Because let me tell you something categorically, guys, where there is alcoholism, there is always trauma. Now, we have to obviously identify trauma because trauma to an alcoholic brain, this will freak you out as well, is different to the normal or drug-addicted brain because your child has not become drug-addicted yet. You might be messing with marijuana, but it's a long time. Alcoholic, first drink, done. You're going downhill. So me and my brother sat, uh, stood on the kitchen table one day and my mom wants it, walks in, for instance, and she says to my brother, because this is what she said and this is what he hears, Paul, get, get down off that table, you stupid idiot, get down. That's what he hears. Do you know what I hear? Get out of that table, you stupid idiot my brain and my trauma and it goes into the subconscious brain and it's stored there and do you know what that comes to the prefrontal cortex it comes when you're going to go after that girl when you're going for that job when you're going for that car or house that's when it comes back and before you make the vital decision or before you walk into the interview out from the subconscious brain comes you stupid idiot who do you think you are are you kidding me look at the other guys in here they're more intelligent than you and it stores so what we do is replace all that sayings that we've learned through. If I drop on the pen on the floor today, oh, God, you stupid idiot. Oh, stop. That's self-dialogue, buddy. And self-dialogue will kill me. You see, I believe everything I say. And I wouldn't speak to my worst enemy the way I speak to myself or I used to speak to myself. Not my worst enemy. So we have to change that round. So we start working on that, working on behavior. Then you go back to the scene of the crime, as we call it, and we clear all that trauma up that you didn't think was trauma, but it is. So the alcoholic brain is different to the normal brain. You know, not only the ethanol with the brain, but also the trauma that we have because we're born with self-sabotaging neural pathways, thought patterns. And our body, our mind will store all the negative, never the good. Whereas a normal person will speak all the good, maybe take notice of a uh, negative. So real quick, I went to California to speak and uh, it was a fire hazard so they could only have a thousand people and so they clicked them as they came through the door there was actually a thousand people in this premise and i talk and after they always say uh, put two hours aside after everybody comes up and shakes your hand it's customary in this group i'm sure that they did amazing fantastic mind-blowing you're amazing one person guys said you were shit you sounded angry 
and I didn't like you at all and walked off. Have a guess what I concentrated on for the next three months <laughs> and nearly relapsed. Mm. The one guy, whereas other people see the 999 guys going, hey, amazing. Oh, by the way, there was one clown that didn't like me. Pfft, no, that's not our brain. We go after because the self-sabotage is still there. So what happens is this is the, this is the self-sabotage in your pathways. There are billions in the head, by the way. But let's say this is the main free out, freeway out of your city. So that's where everything goes. I'm going to drink. I'm going to self-sabotage, whether it's sunny, it's raining. My brother died. My sister lived. Everything. That's it. What we do is we build, start building these healthy neural pathways off to a new life. And what happens over a period of time is this. Now, this becomes our central fact. This is where we get that job, get that girl, get that house, make a, make a difference in the world, help the other alcoholics, just be that guy that everyone wants to be. And as long as we do our things on a daily basis, we're going to stay like that. We're never going to go back to that. But this is always going to be there. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. The findings from our company is below that. Once you recover, is a 7.3 time frame hmm. where you get to decide what choice you're going to make. Whereas when you were suffering, you didn't have a choice. Now we have a choice. So a bit of thought, snap of the elastic band, central nervous system, re-alerts, brain re-alerts, make a good decision and move on with your life. That's how it works. Interesting, interesting. I'm curious, um, when therapists, when treatment centers, when we're using this diagnosis of substance use disorder, do you think that is helping our cause or by using that diagnosis, we're actually missing the mark and probably treating it wrong because of that diagnosis? I truly believe, and this is my opinion based on my research, guys, mm -hmm. so either take it with a pinch of salt or don't. How can you first have a therapist that's learning from 1960s and 70s textbooks to this day? Life's changed. Why put a label on something that's not really there? Mm. You only got to look at the kids these days. They go in, they say, oh, they can't concentrate. Here's some Adderall. You just kill that guy, that young kid, because we're just quick to dismiss. Put a label on him. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's suffering from this. He's suffering from that. You should stop doing that. And treatment centers do the same. It's like it's A, B, and C. Do A, B, and C. D will follow. That, that, there's a way of doing this. But what people tend to do is they want to ask you how you're feeling. We fucking tell you how you're feeling so you can decide who's feeling. You know, I'm an alcoholic. I don't know what day it is. I'm struggling. I'm dying of this disease. Stop it. I'm going to take control of you for the next four weeks. So you go into, when I used to go into rehab, you know, uh, they used to teach me out of these 60s and 70s textbooks, and it doesn't work. Show me your statistics, guys, because if you don't know, I'll tell you right now. Any treatment center in the world, or not in the world, that's wrong. There's a hundred and odd treatments out there that are amazing that we work with. Most treatments out there, the success rate is five to 10%. 12 step rooms are sitting at 6% right now. We're sitting at 96%. Can you imagine a surgeon? You sit there for heart surgery and the surgeon comes in and goes, Hey, listen, it's going to be awesome. I actually have a 5% success rate, but hey, it's going to be awesome. Why the hell would you go down with that surgeon? You know, but people don't know because there's no money in recovering. There's no money. You'll see governments now and again put a million dollar side. For what? You're throwing money out. Where's the research? Where's the evidence-based research? Because I'm sorry, guys, but most treatment centers got it wrong, especially when they're taking little Johnny back in for his fourth time, charging 30000 a month. What the hell are you doing? Stop killing people. Let's get down to brain science. There's a new, I'm up with all the latest and accredited and uh, with, brain, with uh, brain spotting. Oh, what's brain spotting? Everyone says in treatment centers. Well, it's a direct line from your eyes to the subconscious brain. Shut up. No, I'm serious. So you can see what's in there by the eye movement. EDMR is, is kind of the thing, but this is nothing to hold on. No funny music. We're just watching for a certain thing to happen. And we take it back. Somatic experience. Does everyone forget about the body? You see, if you watch a deer that's been hit by a car but not killed, it will lie on the floor for a second, it will stand up, and it will shake violently. Rid of stress, rid of everything that's just happened. That deer does not run away, apparently, from what we've heard, worrying about that car crash. It's over. As human beings, we take that stuff in, we never shake off. Well, people don't know about that. 
And that store, there's a great book out there because the body keeps count. Uh, that stuff is stored up and stored up and stored up. And all that trauma is stored up and stored up and stored up. And unless you treat that, it's like a zip file on a, on a computer screen. One of these days when you don't even know, you're going to click on that and all that shit is going to come out all at once and you will relapse. Hmm. This episode has been brought to you in part by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit recovery organization made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, harm reduction and support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopemaryland.org and consider donating to our calls. So I, I do think it's interesting uh, with your story that led you to 12-step and with the statistic you just gave of like, you know, this idea of 6% success rate. Uh, <clears throat> and I'm imagining that's without any other, you know, interference going on in that process. So do you recommend that people that after they get involved with you and, and receive this treatment, do, do you recommend they go to 12-step? Do you think it's useful at all? I, I, I go to Alcoholics Anonymous. We have a group that we formed because we're sick of everyone else laughing when you said recovered alcoholics and talking about war stories. So we have a group like many out there and others thousands that talk about the book and talk about, you know, recovery properly rather than war stories. So yes, we do. But we always ask that when you're picking a group, make sure that you fit in and take what you want and leave what you don't believe in. Because you're all, we go through the book study here. First and second edition is public domain. So that's what we warn about. You don't go to a meeting while you're working with us because I don't want anybody else messing with your mind while I'm changing your your thinking and, and, and neural pathway. Uh, but yeah, I, I love 12-step. I've sp spoken all over the world on behalf of AA, which is beautiful. I get to do that. So there's a lot of positive people, a lot of positive groups. But like anything else, you're going to get people that's going because the, the wife's died and they're lonely. Because the wife said to him, hey, you're drinking too much. Go to AA. So them guys come. And when they get in there, they find a little click. They drink the coffee. You know, they hit. This is what I've seen. They hit on the younger girls coming in, you know. And it's not AA. It's just not AA. So if we're talking about the real AA, there's 100% success rate. Them guys that go to the right meeting who wants to get well, there's 100% success rate. I know that from the fact. Hmm. But the brain science is missing to keep you on that track. And the trauma is not recognized to the normal alcoholic. Oh, I've got no trauma. That's what they all say. No, you have. That's what you keep relapsing. Well, I did a step four before. Really? What did you do? Told all my resentments. Give me one. Well, I stole $5 off my grandma. Stop. The book says, we write down our resentments. We put our finger on the weaker items in stock. They are our grosser handicaps. There's only seven grosser handicaps in the world. Unless you've got one of those down, you're not doing a thorough step four. So that's where we get into problem. Watered down book, watered down God, crazy sponsors. <laughs> because his his sponsor told me to ring him every day with blue socks on. He expects me to ring him every day with blue socks on. And that shit don't work for me. I'm dying every day of untreated alcoholism. Yet he's been sober for 100 years. How is that? Not a real alcoholic. Not done the work. If you're a real alcoholic that walks into an alcoholic's anonymous room, and you don't leave with the right sponsor and with the book he wants to teach you, get the hell out of there and run as fast as you can. You know, the stuff I've heard. Some of the stuff I've heard in AA, I want to call the police and have them all arrested for attempted murder. <laughs> Funny, oh, we often don't joke worry, Rob. about NA. <laughs> right? I know, right? There was one girl in NA that came around about 10 years ago, I think. She was from Australia. And oh, she spoke my language. Oh my God. I don't think you ever heard of her, you know, uh, uh, listen to her talk. She blew my mind. She was like Chris Raymer of AA. And, <laughs> you know, what I, I listened to Chris Raymer many, many years ago and he changed my life. But yeah, we need more of these people. It's this sugarcoating, this shit kills people. This ain't a game. The more people die uh, from addiction than any other illness put together. Oh, whoa, hang on, Rob. You got that wrong. No, I haven't. You see, when somebody flies down the car drunk as shit because he's an alcoholic on the freeway, kills himself and 10 kids, what does it go down? 
drunk driving. When the guy's got uh, so much damage to his lid, he's suffering from cirrhosis from his drinking and fall down the stairs. What did they put it? They put it fall down the stairs on, as an accident. So these are not being reported. And I know that because we did five weekends in a local hospital and sat in their ER department. And every single person came in on a Friday and Saturday night. I would say about 96% were under the influence. Of that 96%, 47% was real drug or alcoholic. And there we go. Now, I saw one of the services you offer, tools that you use, is the uh, neuro-linguistic programming. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how you use that? The neuro-linguistic programming goes back, you know. So the easiest way to do this is that I can place thought patterns and behaviors into your brain without you knowing. That's what we do. We, we, and that's what neuro-linguistics is about. So, for instance... If you came to my house and was sat here, you know, shooting the breeze, and I'll say, hey, what's your favorite drink, soft drink? I pretty like Coke. Coke's good. Not Diet Coke, though. I like Coke. Awesome. Then you get in my car. We travel to my office. By the time I get to my office, I open the fridge, and there's all sorts of drinks there, but there's more Cokes than there is any other drinks, and you suddenly pick out a Fanta. And I go, Fanta? I thought you said Coke. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I just want to change. I did that. See, what I did without you knowing is I left an empty can of Fanta on my garden grass before we got into the car. Then I took you past two big uh, signboards on the side of the freeway that says Fanta. Fanta's amazing. Girl drinking a Fanta. Then I took to your office and you want Fanta. That's neuron legacy programming in the layman's terms. Hmm. And it's so powerful. It's unbelievable. Now, if I may for a second... Remember the daughter, the youngest daughter's never spoke to me 30 odd years on, but you remember the daughter that said, daddy, daddy, please stop drinking. She contacted me two years ago on, on Messenger. She wanted to go back to school. We were talking. I went over there. We hugged. She introduced my granddaughter. She wanted to go back to school to become an NLP practitioner, a real one. So we sent her to go back. Four weeks ago, she started at my company as mm. our neuro-linguistic programming girl. That's amazing. How cool is that? Yeah, yeah. that is awesome. It's all about this. All about this. It's like, and I'll tell you how it works with the mind. If you've been on a, on a bus anywhere, on a, on a, like a school out into the museum or whatever, you all travel there happy. You go out, you have the day at the seaside or the, or the museum. You get back in the bus. What seat do you sit in? You sit in the one you came in. Mm-hmm. So that fact that you may say, hey, that's my seat. If someone dares sit there, that's how our brain works. It's phenomenal. It's more intense. It's more smarter. Uh, and intelligent than anybody would guess unless they're the neuroscience guy because what we can hold in our hand we've had to imagine it first so visualize it hold in your hand that's how the universe works end of story we know like recovery isn't just about stopping using that's just a symptom of the disease so besides just you know the stopping of the using what are some other real recovery supports that people need like you know, you had mentioned family. It's a family disease, things like that. What other, uh, I guess you'd call them recovery supports, are we looking for for a re- good recovery program? After they finish here, you're looking at uh, good 12-step meetings. You're looking at local meetings. Now there's an app for it in your area for social things like walking you've never done before. Get out with the family and do it. You know, make sure your group is so show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Hmm. So make sure the guys that you hang around with are the guys you want to hang around with. I truly believe that alcoholics and addicts are born with million dollar minds, but we keep hanging around 10 cent minds. What happens is we act on their level and not our true level. The book says that God gave us brains to use. I've never done a, never seen a stupid alcoholic yet. <laughs> what we also tell them is you don't 50 grand a year and you want to earn 70, start hanging around the guys that earn 70. And close to family, always give it away. Go to the meetings. Be, act the Good Samaritan every day. Do kind acts of people without them knowing. And follow the program that we leave you with, which is mirror work every morning. Well, before we begin, we pray straight away. Mirror work, I love you, I love you 10 times. That's feeding the subconscious brain. Remember, when you go for that interview or job, it's going to be there that you are worthy. And just be the nicest person you can do. Read the book every day, you know, for a page or two. Go to the meeting, sponsor people, just get back in life and just enjoy yourself because we're the only people, guys, who gets two lives in one lifetime. Hmm. Two lives in one lifetime. Are you going to mess the second one up? I'm not. I'm going to get all the experience that I've been through. 
and I'm going to put it to use because what happens today is somebody sits down and goes, Dr. Rob, what do you know? I've seen the house you live in. I've seen the Mercedes McLaren you drive. What the hell do you know? I was homeless, and I can sit him down and go, Johnny, let me tell you about my homelessness. I go, wow. Hey, Dr. Rob, what do you know? Your wife should never left you. Sit down, Johnny. Let me tell you when my life... You see, I've gone all through these things like most good alcoholics do as experience because this is about not being selfish and this is about my full-time job today is bending down to the gutter and lifting them up to God as quick as I can regarding the alcohol and drug problem. And it always works. There's a program out there. There's a solution out there. There's a bunch of guys who are freaking awesome. Come join us. It's amazing. So you've mentioned a lot about your your belief, and it's a very strong and and from my opinion, maybe not Billy's, he's a little different, but I, I think a, a very beautiful belief to see and witness in someone. I'm curious, uh, what is your take on helping people who might be agnostic or atheist or not such believers in God through your program? Does that affect them at all? Um, I always, I've never seen, a, I've never seen a recovered atheist regarding alcohol. Now, drugs, again, are slightly different. I've seen some of them. But there is a spiritual side of this. Now, where people get freaked out is they go, well, I don't believe in God. Well, what do you call God? Jesus. There's 26,000 gods out there. Just freaking pick one. <laughs> you know, it's something that's bigger than you. If you look in the big book, he tells you, we, we have to find a power, small p, and it has to be a power, capital P, greater than myself. So he's talking about a God. He's not talking about the Catholic God is going to kill you if you don't stop drinking. Pick something, the spirit of the universe. What I can't pick is a door handle or a light bulb. Don't be stupid. Or the group. No human power can relieve my alcoholism, but God could and would if he was sought. That's the sort of stuff you're getting through. You know, so yes and no, if they come to me and, and are atheist or agnostic, I was probably agnostic, to be honest. Uh, they do change their mind. Mm -hmm. Because if you come to me, you I tell every, all the parents, you'll see a difference from day one. And I say that to all therapists. If you go to your therapist and, you know, you've been going there for four years and you're still suffering depression and not living your best life. Come on, guys. Come on. Are you kidding me? You have to see a difference from day one. I want to get you excited about life. I want to tell you what you can accomplish. There was a well-known beaten-up actor who, who we picked up from county jail in L.A. with his jumpsuit on. And the judge told me that if I took him and he went missing, I would be back in his courtroom. So I took him home while a bunch of us did on the plane into our, into our uh, estate back in Dallas and our ranch. And we convinced him. The alcohol and drug from day one is gone. Forget about it. It's a symptom. It's not what you're dealing with. But we convinced him that he was going to be the biggest, highest paid movie star in the world. And he laughed at us. And every time somebody come in, they would call him. My God, he was just a, are you the best actor in the world? And eventually he started saying, yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah. You know, hey, you, the, yes, I'm the best actor in the world. And we got him saying it really loud. So two weeks before we finished, we had um, a male to the door, the, the gate bell went, the chauffeur went down, got the package, come back. The assistant brought it to me uh, in the in the room because this guy was chilling in the other room. I took hold of it. I walked in and I said, there you go. And he said, what is it? I said, I don't know. Mailman's just delivered. He opened it up and it was a script for the best-selling movie of all time. He is currently one of the best-paid actors in the world. It's all about belief. It's all about mindset. It's all about the brain and thinking who you can, can become because you can become anybody you want to become. Oh, well, I can't be president. Stop it. Stop it. We've had a, a business that run our country for four years. You can become anything you want to. You just have to start to believe it. So we want to be respectful of your time, Dr. Rob, and we're really appreciative of you coming on. I know you're getting ready to have to sign off for some other commitments, but I do want to give you a couple minutes here to talk about your, your book, your website, your podcast, anything you'd like to talk about with those things. Uh, I definitely am interested in what you talk about on your podcast, like what kind of topics. Yeah, excellent. So the, the movie I was talking about is a great movie to watch if you're out there. It's called Iron Man. You might want to just have a quick look at that. It's awesome. And uh, yeah, my podcast is every Friday, me and Jennifer Lovely, who's my uh, partner in crime. We've got, we've interviewed on our podcast anything from the major player in the White House regarding drugs to famous footballer, musicians. We had Ricky Bird on the other night. He was the, uh, he's the guitarist for John Jett. 
you know, all them great guys are on. We talk about anything they want to talk about, but we mainly talk about life, recovery from, and, and the past they come from, which is awesome. The website, I spell my name with two Bs, R-O-B-B-K-E-L-O-Y.com is the website. Everything you need is on there. If you still further want to delve into me and stalk me, uh, sorry, find me, you can go onto any, any search engine and you can type either Rob Kelly or Dr. Rob Kelly in and up I will come. I think I own the first five or six pages. And the only reason why I do that is because some smart ass in my couple of months over here decided to get, get my website. It was R-O-B-B instead of R-O-B. So instead of $10,000, I paid $1.99 for my website. That's the deal. The deal on the, the book, it's actually on the website, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. You can buy it from Amazon or you can buy it from Walmart, whichever you want. But Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking, as you remember, is, is my eldest daughter's last words to me. And the book is non-for-profit as far as we're concerned. We donate thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars every year. You have to be a one-parent family in recovery with children. So all the money, I think it's $9, all the money, from that book, not the profits, all the money go back into communities around the world. So we will buy them Christmas presents when you can't afford it for your kids. We will buy them birthday presents. We will tell you or try and find you that job, anything we can do. So it's all about giving it away today. Oh, that is and, and that's about it. And it always oh, one more thing. So are you ready? Yeah. Okay. But many people see me and they go, oh, God, look at him, blah, blah, blah. I wish I could speak to him. <laughs> Never speak to that guy. Really? I'm the guy from the project. This is my personal cell phone number, not my assistant, not my office, not my receptionist. My personal cell phone number, 214-600-0210. And if you're fear at home thinking you're not good enough and you can never amount to any, first of all, I want to apologize. Somebody's put that there. But secondly, if you're feeling down, or anything like that. This is not to sell you anything. I don't want any, any business. But for, if you, I'll give you five minutes, 10 minutes free of charge with a pep talk that will change your life. Wow. You heard yeah. it, guys. That's incredible. Dr. Rob, it's been a blast talking to you, man. It's just nice to, your spirit. It's yeah. nice. It's a beautiful thing. You have a great energy, great enthusiasm for recovery. It's amazing. Thanks, guys. This is awesome. It's funny. I have to tell you real quick because Courtney's my outreach girl. And uh, apart from the real famous ones, she goes around and she she's kind of stalks people. <laughs> and then and then she gets on the phone and she's okay, I've got one for, for, for a Sunday. And I'm like, yeah, but I, I don't work on a Sunday. I just do a little joke. Listen, I've got one for Sunday and these guys are awesome. You need to see these guys and you need to be on their show. I go, okay, Courtney, don't shout at me. So I don't know what she found out about you guys, but she was right. You're awesome. This is a great show. And thank you both, okay? Because we never know. We never get thanked. We think, but I want to tell you something. Not a lot of people thank me today. Do you know why? Ah, oh, do you think he, he already knows? We don't. Let me thank you, too. Not only for the work you do, but for the tenacious work that you do. And the hundreds of thousands of people's lives that you are saving, not touching, with the ripple effect, the people that listen to your show, the friends, the colleagues, your family, because like, you two are great guys. And I was looking forward to this before I had my early patient this morning Then I'm supposed to be done for the day. But I was looking forward to this because you guys, I admire you guys. And let me tell you this, if you think you can get away, get away from it this easy, I'm going to friend you on Facebook, on Twitter, I'm going to stay in touch with you two guys because you two guys are the bomb. Excellent. Well, thank you very that much. Sounds great. We appreciate it. Dr. Rob, enjoy Thanks the rest again. of your weekend, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon through Facebook. Yes. Yes, sir. Right. Bye, guys. Keep in Bye. touch. All right. Well, what an interesting conversation with Dr. Rob Kelly. Yeah, definitely. And there was some things that he said that were fascinating because there were parts of the things he talked about that happened in my early recovery that weren't specifically uh, labeled in the way that he had identified them. But like I had an early sponsor that had me look in the mirror and do affirmations, you know, and that was one of the things I did early on. Yeah, no, I, I think from a, you know, therapy standpoint, everything he said made pretty good sense about the rewiring and the amygdala and the hypothalamus, like all that from my understanding, I'm not great with brain functions and stuff, but like I, I have a pretty good understanding of the pieces and their role and, and how it all works. And I, 
I mean, it was all accurate information and reprogramming through affirmations and somatic experiencing of things to change the way we feel about it. Um, you know, and, and probably for the, the layman description of some of it, I was like, well, that's a little too basic for how it works in my <laughs> understanding, right? We're not going to ride past a couple of billboards and now you like Fanta Orange more than Coca-Cola, but uh, no, I mean, the general concept of all of it made a lot of sense. I I don't know. I get I get stuck. Like, I, I get he's not specifically trying to sell anything and I, I love the work he was doing. I I don't know about claiming anything is a hundred percent working. I, I, it made me a little nervous inside. I was like, Christ, do my clients feel better after the first <laughs> right. session with me? Like, I don't know if I, maybe I'm are you helping up. people right. or are you just making them worse? I, I mean, I, I think I'm helping them, but I'm like <laughs> after session one, I don't know. Yeah. I basically I just found out who the fuck you were. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 I really, I loved Rob Kelly. I love Dr. Rob Kelly. It, it can be very much one of those things. His energy and his enthusiasm are contagious. And so oh, it would be yeah. easy to talk to someone with that level of energy and excitement and sort of leave, you know, feeling like, yeah, fuck yeah, I can do this. You know, I, I got this. I can I can get it. Maybe my initial therapy appointments with people need to be more exciting. Maybe I need yeah, to bring need some more of that energy. energy. yeah he was he was great to talk to and i think his life experiences were pretty incredible right like the some of the lows he had to experience i don't know i guess from the little bit of research i did on him i was looking more at like what he's doing today so i didn't really get to hear much of that story and to hear parts of that story I, i was like wow man what a yeah no wonder you were asked to speak at some like aa conventions and stuff that's incredible yeah and i do appreciate the uh, using some of these more science-based methods along with the spiritual aspects of the 12 steps. You know, it's like you don't need, it doesn't have to be one or the other. We don't have to pick these mutually exclusive, you know, paths. We can sort of try to incorporate all the best things for our mind, body, and spirit to grow and change. And that's going to give us the the best chance of success i did kind of want to ask if he because he mentioned that it was everything was telehealth now i wanted to know like was it the same before the pandemic and is it going to be in person afterwards or or is it always just going to be telehealth yeah it's interesting since the pandemic how many things are opening up to telehealth and not that this has anything to do with recovery but like we have a family that runs an auction business and they had always done in-person auctions up until the pandemic and now they said we're never doing in-person auctions again the online auctions are so much better and so much more successful Hmm. so just that weird pandemic changed their entire business that is (laughs) crazy yeah just weird but so okay one of your kids sadly tragically gets involved with drugs or alcohol gets stuck you send them how many treatment centers do you go through before you call up dr rob kelly like for real just like how many times do you send them a 28 day detox and the same thing happens before you say you know what let me try this dr rob kelly (laughs) yeah and I, i was thinking a lot about that like the 28 day program thing and how quickly they address issues and how you know how much work and part of me wants to give a slight pass in that how much can you really do with like an addict that's been using in the first 28 days? I mean, at least a couple of those weeks are getting your fucking head out of the clouds. You know what I mean? Trying to figure out how to eat and take a shower again, you know, while you're getting through like detox and shit. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think from his, like he was saying he does, it was pretty much four weeks, wasn't it? I I thought that was kind of what he was getting at was like, it was an hour a day for four weeks or something. And he's, Saying he's doing better. I don't know. I, I'm thinking maybe one. I might try traditional detox and hope for some good outcomes. And after that, I'm like, I, I think I would. I'd be like, well, what the fuck? What else? What? If, let me try something outside the box that seems oh, for to sure. work. And I'm not totally sold on the 28 day thing. I like this last my last go into recovery. I didn't go into treatment at all. You know, I figured I had been like two or three times. Why go again? Like it was just a waste of my own money. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I have always said uh, some people can get clean in the neighborhood they used. I think some people might need a break, right? They might need to get away from that for a while. And he kind of was like, no, no, we we need to learn in the environment or at least. And he said in the environment we're going to be in. But maybe that also means like 
if we're truly in a really unto- you know unhealthy toxic environment, we're not going back there at all. But we still need to be, you know, get clean or sober in the environment we're going to be in moving forward. Yeah, I'm sure that's unique to each individual. I mean, I, I got clean in the house that I used with people in every day for years. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that or think that anybody can do that because I did it. But I lived in the same house, you know, for three or four years, I decided to get clean and started going to meetings and stayed there for a couple of months until I could get out of there. So, you know, I didn't leave the area or leave the people that I even used with for a while. I I think one of the more fascinating things that he said i mean i don't know everything was pretty fascinating i really enjoyed the conversation but one of the things that maybe i I won't just instantly buy in and agree with but i thought it was interesting was the idea that alcoholism or alcoholics are somehow different than people who are addicted to drugs and i get that there's like this physical dependency difference that can happen but I don't know. I maybe I'm an alcoholic because I definitely identified with all the ways <laughs> right. he said that alcoholics are that way from birth, right? And, and that I'm not saying he's wrong whatsoever, but I have just never seen any kind of research that could show that. And, and from my experiences and my internal felt experience, I identify with all the things he was talking about, and that's what I see in what I call addicts. I, I don't know, but. It, I don't know. That's an interesting take. Maybe there is a difference somewhere in there where many more people can become addicted to these substances, but there's actually this pure, you're born to do it kind of person as well that exists. And maybe it's not so much alcoholics versus addicts and what drug you choose, but maybe it's just more of, there are these two different types of people. Some people get stuck in using these things too much and other people are just born that that that's their solution from birth like food yeah and myself i mean alcohol was always my biggest problem up until i found heroin and then that became a bigger problem right and then i went back to alcohol as my biggest problem so i don't (laughs) yeah every time i tried to stop the harder drugs alcohol became my new biggest problem it was like oh i'll just drink i don't know how that works alcohol in the house every (laughs) night (laughs) well alcohol was just the easiest and most accessible and i i will say at least from alcohol and drugs i i could identify with what he said like the very first time that i did it i feel like i had just totally sold my soul to alcohol mm. after the first time. Right. I was like, yep, I'm in. This is me. This feels great. I mean, I don't know. There's no science behind that for me. But <laughs> Any other uh, thoughts about anything? Uh, no. Just uh, like say, his his energy. And there's plenty of different uh, YouTube interviews and things. If you just YouTube Rob Kelly, you can find lots of talks that he's on and uh, find lots of information. So it was fun to research and, and learn about. Yeah, and uh, underneath this episode, if you found us on our website, recoverysortof.com, or if you found this episode anywhere, you should see underneath of this the links to Dr. Rob Kelly's website and his podcast as well. Um, So feel free to check them out if you enjoyed Rob Kelly's energy. I know I did, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Did you like this episode? Share it with people you think might get something out of it. Check out the rest of our episodes at recoverysortof.com. Also, while you're there, you can find ways to link up with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, YouTube, anything. We're always looking for new ideas. Got an idea you want us to look into? Reach out to us. <laughs>